just about does it, doesn't it? It reminds us of the times that we live in, and, and it sets the stage for this series, but uh, we're reminded in Revelation that there is also not just cause for concern, and there's not just this chaotic and fearful uh, time that we live in, but there is also something else behind the scenes. There, there is joy. There, uh, there is something to celebrate. There is a deep sense of peace. And real quick, I do want to mention as, a, as an example of that, last week, you remember, our projector conked out, our 10-month-old projector. And so we had a backup that had these black spots all over it. And so somebody this week emailed me, and they said, hey, I'd like to donate a new projector. And so that's the new projector right there. And we've got, we've got one under warranty that's getting fixed, but that's a new one. Isn't that generous? What a generous gift. So there are always bright spots, always bright spots. Thank you to the person who did that. So this is the first week of this new series in the book of Revelation. We're going to try to understand what the book of Revelation actually says, first of all, and then what it means for our lives, for the world, for the times we live in, and including our own personal lives. You will be shocked at how eerily relevant this book is. Now, think about the anxiety that we have lived in over the past several years. Now, you're thinking, I'd rather not, actually. I'd rather not think about the, the fear and anxiety that we've lived in over the past several years. There's a war in Europe now. My goodness. And, and we have inflation. And depending on how you define it, a recession and, and ever-deepening policy division and escalating violent rhetoric by some groups in America. We see extremism on the rise, climate change, mass gun violence, and on and on, propaganda spreading, lies, and people people dedicating themselves. In my home state of Ohio, a guy attacked the FBI a couple of weeks ago. And, and all of these things are happening at the same time over the past several years, and there's a great deal of uncertainty about the future of America. The midterm elections are coming this year. There's a presidential election in 2024. Uh, there are rights that have been taken away. Some, some people are wondering, are we headed towards the handmaid's tale? What, what, what does the future look like for this country? Chaos and hatred and violence seem to be gaining ground. And Jesus famously said, and we don't know if we're in the last days or not, we don't know, but Jesus said, in the last days, the love of many will grow, what? Cold. And doesn't it feel like that? We're in one of those times, whether or not it's the last days now, we're in one of those chaotic times where the love of many seems to be growing cold. In the division, in the, in the bigotry, in the hatred, of our time. We've seen where nationalism and authoritarianism have taken countries in the past. We hope and pray that doesn't happen here. But in times like this, like the video said, we need guidance and, and honesty and most of all, hope. And hope almost always comes as a surprise, doesn't it? When we least expect it. And so perhaps from the, the pages of this ancient literature that is mysterious and, and opaque and at times terrifying, perhaps hope will come from these pages, a message written 20 centuries ago, shared to uncover, to reveal what is really going on from God's view behind the scenes. And so we're going to talk about the familiar questions around Revelation, the, the mark of the beast, and the 144,000, and the return of Christ, and the millennium, and the last judgment, the war of Armageddon, and, and so on. But most of all, we're going to see how Revelation speaks directly to our lives in ways that we find surprising. So today, we're going to kick off the series with a sermon that's in two parts. The first part's going to be an info dump. I'm just going to give you a bunch of information about Revelation and how to interpret it, some various ways to interpret it, just to kind of set the stage. And then in the second half of the sermon, we're going to talk about the practical application of chapter one and what it means for you right now and, and me. And what, what we brought in here with us this morning, our circumstances in life, our anxieties, our fears. And so first, the info dump about Revelation, and then second, what it means to us. So first of all, Revelation is seen by most Christians as the most confusing book in the Bible. Can I get an amen? Martin Luther, the reformer, Martin Luther wanted to remove Revelation from the Bible. Did you know that? Because he didn't believe it shared the gospel. He didn't see value in it. Somebody told me this past week that she doesn't read Revelation because it spooks her. She's probably not the only one. Uh, I can see why. It's full of symbolic imagery and dragons and, and cryptic numbers. Now, some of you want to read it because of that. You're like, dragons? Yeah, I'm in. But this is the apocalypse. It's the book that contains 666 and, and, and the battle of Armageddon and the four horsemen of the apocalypse and images that have found their way into popular 
culture. And so as sci-fi as Revelation is, I promise you, it seems to make more sense at times than, than the past few years in America, in the confusing times we live in. And when we actually get in, into the book and get its message, like, oh, okay. I can see how the characters change, but the story remains the same throughout history. People just kind of do the same things over and over and over again. It's been said history doesn't repeat itself, but it what? Rhymes. And we see that in Revelation. In times of great social change, there has been renewed interest in the end times. In the American Revolution, it's one of those times. During the Civil War, Bible prophecy took off in America. A lot of what people think of when they think of Revelation, that started to take hold in the late 1800s. After the chaos of the Civil War and the, and the division in this country. Uh, during uh, the Great Depression and FDR and the New Deal. World War II and the Cold War led to people predicting the end. The social changes in the 1960s spurred another round of Bible prophecy. The Persian Gulf War in 91. Uh, and now we've had you know, 10 or 15 years of great social change in America. And the same thing that's happened. The rise of doomsday preppers. And people buying meals that would you know, take them through catastrophes. That kind of thing. And, and there's a renewed interest in the end. Now, I understand where they're coming from when there are people who say, you know, I don't understand it. I try to avoid it. But one of the main themes in Revelation is how to deal with fear and anxiety. And wow, do we ever need that. And so that's where we're going to start today. We're going to read this passage from Revelation chapter 1. It's a long passage. I'm going to read 20 verses. And they told me in, in Bible school, don't, uh, don't read long passages of Scripture because people get bored. Can we prove them wrong today? Now, especially when it's Revelation, you're not going to get bored. It's just, it's so wild, you're not going to get bored. But let's go ahead and read, and we're going to get a flavor for this book, and then we're going to dive in. So here's how it starts out. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Soon take place. Interesting. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Interesting, 2,000 years ago. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And then a famous phrase, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient abundant, sorry, endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We made it. We made it through. You just read a whole chapter there. Now, I was in a men's Bible study years and years ago, back in the 90s, and, and the pastor read from Revelation. There was a guy there who 
wasn't really a church guy. He, he was a, a spiritual guy. He, he had uh, gotten to a relationship with Jesus. He, he was on fire. He was growing, but he, his language wasn't all cleaned up and churchy, you know, like, like some expected him to be. And, and we read this passage, and if you're offended by this, I'm sorry, pardon, but we, uh, the pastor read a passage like this, and he said, what the hell? And so I, that's always stuck with me. I, this, that could have been the title of this series, Revelation. What the hell? It's just so confusing. I'm sorry if you're offended by that, but it was a funny story, and he was just being honest. So Jesus appears to a, a man named John who had been exiled to an island called Patmos. Uh, and have you ever wondered, if you were to meet God, what would God say to you? I remember inside the actor's studio, there was, a, it was an interview show for actors, and that used to be a question during the interview. And, and the first words Jesus says in Revelation, do not be afraid. He says to John, in a chaotic, violent, frightening, anxious time, Jesus said, do not be afraid. Now, he probably meant don't be afraid of me, but don't be afraid of everything around you either. Do not be afraid. And that becomes one of the themes of this book. Do not be afraid. I think about all the things I fear. All the things that cause me anxiety, the things that cause me to lose sleep, things I'll have nightmares about occasionally wake up kind of freaked out because it's your brain's way of dealing with things you fear. I mean, just some of those things. I have two boys, 11 and 6, and they wrestle and they jump on the bed and they jump off furniture. And I tell them, you can't do that, guys. You can't, you can't jump on the bed. And, and Hannah and I will give them speeches about the injuries we had growing up. And, and you know, I'm just afraid that, you know, they'll, they'll jump off the bed and hit their head and get hurt. And so it, there's just, there's fear there. You know, I feel anxious when they're, when they're doing that. And that's just a little thing that happens every day. What do you fear? There's so many things happening in our world and, 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 and what could happen and, and job situations, though, personally, or relationship issues. And, and what do you fear? What causes you anxiety? Now, you might think, you know, we don't have time to talk about all the things that cause me anxiety. But if you think, what are the major ones? What are the major things that cause you anxiety? Just thinking about what could happen causes us fear doesn't it? When you think about what could happen, whether it happens or not, it causes anxiety and fear. And fear can be in incredibly destructive. We miss out on so much joy in life because of the things we worry about. How many of you realize that's true? And it's been said most of the things we worry about never even happen. It's just wasted energy, wasted time worrying about things that will never happen in the first place. Fear is just such a, a, a powerful force, a destructive force in our lives. And, and so over the next six weeks, we're going to talk about how Revelation speaks to us and our fears. And it may look different than the things you've heard before about Revelation, but I hope you'll be able to say the same thing, that you are just pleasantly surprised and shocked by what you see. So a little bit more of the info dump. So first of all, what are we reading here when we read from Revelation? What's the genre of Revelation? Well, first, it's an apocalypse. And uh, apocalypse, it's the very first word, actually, in, in Chapter 1, verse 1 is apocalypsis in Greek. And apocalypsis means revelation. They're synonyms. And so I have the next slide here, a definition. Apocalypsis in Greek, we, of course, we translate apocalypse or revelation. It means, a lot of people think it means like the end or the, a disaster, a catastrophe. What apocalypse means is to reveal what is hidden, to uncover something that was previously covered. You take food to a potluck, and there's a lid on it, and you take the lid off. That's apocalypse. <laughs> You've, behold the apocalypse, my fruit salad that I brought to the potluck. That's the meaning of apocalypse. It's to take the cover off of something, to reveal something. And here's what it means in Revelation. It's to show what's really going on, like to pull back the curtain in The Wizard of Oz and to see what's, there's a guy cranking wheels back there to uncover and show what's really going on behind the scenes. That's what apocalypse means. There are other uh, examples of apocalypse in the Bible, Ezekiel in the Old Testament, parts of the book of Daniel. There are other letters written around the, the time of Revelation that are not in the Bible, over 20 uh, apocalyptic uh, pieces of literature. One of the most well-known is called the Apocalypse of Ezra. It was a popular genre of literature at that time because of the chaotic times. That they lived in. And then we'll go on to the next one. Secondly, it's a prophecy. 
In verse 3, we read that Revelation is a prophecy. Now, prophecy is often misunderstood most of the time in the Bible. Prophecy just means to speak for God, like giving a sermon. And, and it's not even about the future. It's just speaking on behalf of God. But part of the definition is also something about the future. It can mean both. And in Revelation, it, it means both. It's about things that were happening then and things that would be happening soon, it says. Um, interestingly. So Revelation is a prophecy. And then lastly, Revelation is a letter. And this gets missed a lot in, in popular, you know, especially Christian TV teaching about Revelation that that Revelation is a letter. In verse 4, we read, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. That's how you started a letter in the ancient world. That's how Paul started his letters. That, that's, that's a letter that, that John is writing on a scroll, a rolled-up animal skin in the ancient world. There were no books yet. And he's writing a letter to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So, and this is extremely important. When we read Revelation... We are reading someone else's mail. And it's not like we're reading somebody else. We are literally reading somebody else's mail. Just like the letters of Paul. It meant something to them at the time. This was a letter delivered to these seven churches in the form of a scroll to, to, to give them a message that would mean something to them then. And it says it will mean something later as well. Revelation was written around the year 95 AD, we think, in what was called Asia at that time. Now it's called Turkey. Just north of the Mediterranean Sea, you, you could refer to it as Asia Minor in the ancient world, but now it's Turkey. Here's a map of the Roman Empire. You see, I'll step out of the way, you see northern Africa here. You see Spain, France, uh, the UK is up there, Italy. And then here's what is now Turkey, these seven churches are right here. It's this little cluster of churches right almost in the middle of the Roman Empire that this, this letter of, uh, called the Revelation was sent to. And so we are reading a letter. Um, John was probably a pastor, and he had been exiled by the Roman Empire to an island called Patmos, 37 miles off the coast of Turkey. So he's out here in the water, and he's writing a letter back to the mainland about this experience that he's had with the risen Jesus. And that's the book of Revelation. So, of course, the book of Revelation is a very popular topic among Christians in America and definitely on Christian TV. I don't know if, if you watch Christian TV, but I've shared before how when I was a teenager, Christian TV was on in my house every day. My mom watched TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and so I saw all kinds of televangelists, and, and um, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, I remember one in particular, this was Conman, but I remember this in one in particular. There was a, a pastor of a big church, uh, and he was giving a revelation series, and he had a big mural behind him. It wasn't a video screen. It was this huge painted mural, like 30 feet high, it looked like, and it was this timeline of the events of Revelation. And then he had his interpretation at that time. So, the, so you read these kind of opaque references to peoples and countries and beasts in Revelation. And he said, well, that's Russia. And then here's Israel and his mural. And here's the United States. And, uh, and, and here's and all this. And he just had it all laid out in detail what Revelation meant right then in like 1988. And using countries and the political situation of that time to interpret. So he was kind of reading our situation in the late 80s into the book of Revelation, believing that Revelation was speaking only about our time, and we were living in the last days, and the end was coming soon, and of course he had a book to sell. And for whatever the price was, 1995 plus shipping and handling, you'd get his book, where he's going to tell you how all this has happened. Now, he was smart enough, he didn't give a date, but it's, man, this is happening soon, and here's what it all means, and you can write in and get my, get my book, and a few years later, I was in a youth ministry at a little church in Ohio, and, and they took us to one of his like big uh, revival meetings, like live and in person at a big convention center in Columbus, Ohio. And, and he talked about the same kind of thing. And, and now it was lost on everybody that his book didn't really come true. But now he had a new book about how it was all going to happen soon. And this is no joke. They took two offerings during the service. 
And, and there, was, there was one offering in the, in the middle for something and then an offering at the end for something else. And I thought, hmm, you know, in my teens. I was like, hmm, I wonder what's going on here. Maybe, maybe he doesn't know exactly what Revelation means. Maybe he's reading our own times and maybe he's making a lot of money doing this. And, and I didn't realize it at the time, but religion and politics have always been intertwined in America. And that was definitely the case in the 80s and 90s. And it still is, unfortunately. Of course, we know that very, very well. And I didn't know at the time, but, you know, really, the point of his book and his TV show was to support a, support a certain president's foreign policy. Like in his Bible prophecy book, NATO was bad. And the European Union's bad. And, and it, was just, it was just the same political situation in the United States. Whatever his preferred political party's beliefs were, that's what got read into Revelation. And then he, that's what God means. God tells you to vote for my candidate. That was really all it was. And I didn't quite understand that at the time. And, and, and the most popular book series, uh, Christian book series ever, in the United States was about the end times. Do you have a guess of the title? Left Behind. Sold millions, tens and tens of millions of copies. It was written by a guy, I didn't know it at the time, it was actually a right-wing activist, a political activist, highly political, named Tim LaHaye. He once wrote a letter to Wheaton College in Illinois in the 60s complaining because they invited Martin Luther King Jr. to speak there. And he said, I'm not going to send students to your school. If you have that kind of a person, speak at your school. That was one of the co-authors of the Left Behind series. Of course, most of us didn't know that. But it was highly political. All right, a little bit more of an info dump. And then we're going to move on to what chapter 1 means for us. So there are four main interpretations of the book of Revelation. Now, as Americans, we've heard primarily one. It's the one on Christian TV. It's the one of the Left Behind series. It's been popular for the last 125-ish years or so. It was popularized by a man named Darby. And then a few decades later, in the early 1900s, in what was called the Schofield Reference Bible, became extremely popular among traveling evangelists at the time and then on Christian television. And it's the futurist view that Revelation is primarily about the future. So John wrote this letter to the seven churches, and it went to those seven churches at that time. But John's like, just kidding, it's not really about you guys, it's about America 2,000 years from now. And so it's, it's the futurist view, and that's the one that this, you know, this pastor sold a lot of books uh, writing about. And, and now, perhaps some of the, the things in Revelation will happen in the future. When you get into Revelation, I don't say this to be alarming, but I mean, what you read about, uh, the kind of catastrophes, I mean... That, that looks like a nuclear war. And, and so, for the first time, 75 years ago, we created weapons that make that kind of destruction literally possible. And so, maybe there is a future component to the book of Revelation. We hope and pray not, but that's not something to fear. That, that tells us to work for peace, like this connect group we're in, to be a peacemaker. Right? But that's the view that most of us are familiar with. And so, how it works is, in every generation, people think, oh, it's my generation. We're the future generation that's being spoken about in the prophecy. And so, like we said, FDR, and then, and then in World War II, the same thing happened. And then in the 70s, another one of these guys wrote a book and predicted that the Antichrist would be the leader of the European Union because Revelation speaks of a beast with 10 horns. And at that time, the European Union had 10 countries in it. Well, now, now there are 27. So that, you know, that didn't work. Right? But in, and in the 1980s, some Bible prophecy buffs thought Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, the leader of Russia, was the Antichrist. Remember, he had, a, he had a birthmark on his head. And they said, well, that's the mark of the beast. There are people who said uh, it was Reagan because Ronald Wilson Reagan had six letters, 666. And a guy, uh, whatever it was, golly, 10 years ago, gave me a series of CDs, remember those, from a Bible prophecy teacher saying Obama was the Antichrist. And, and then on and on and on. Every time in, in the Persian Gulf, it was Saddam. And, and, and then some people think it's the Pope because they're anti-Catholics. And they bash the Catholic Church. And, and so you see how that works. The futurist view usually is used to say, well, no, it's, we're in the last days. And here's what it all means. And that's, that's what you're going to see on Christian TV most of the time. All right, moving on. Uh, number two, historicist view. Now we're getting to the ones that most Americans don't even know exist. Interpretations of Revelation. The historicist view is that revelation has been fulfilled throughout history in stages. 
and, it, and still is being fulfilled. So uh, those who hold to the historicist view uh, would read chapter 9 and say that it speaks to the rise of Islam in the 600s. And chapter 10 is the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. And, and other chapters in Revelation they view as predictions of other events that have occurred throughout history. And then maybe we're still a part of that. Interesting. Okay. It's, just a, it's, a, it's an interpretation most of us are not aware of. The third interpretation uh, is the preterist view. And preterist means past. It's the view that Revelation's already been fulfilled. And if you're, if you're a televangelist trying to sell books, man, that just takes all the fun out of it. But, but the preterist view is that the letters were sent to churches at the time. They were talking about events of the time. And that's it. Those events took place, and it meant something profound to them. And that was it. Uh, now, uh, the fourth view is called the idealist view. And it's the view that revelation is applicable in every generation. That in every generation, you see human behavior stays the same. And these same forces, they, they have different names, they're different countries, there are different leaders involved, but it's the same kind of thing happening over and over and over again. And maybe there will be a future component. But it's the view that revelation is always relevant. Now, no matter what view you hold to, one of the views that I'm coming from in this series is that revelation is relevant in every generation. So I'm probably a combination of three and four and, and maybe just a, a touch of one. And, and you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from in full disclosure. And I don't know. I hold that with an open hand. I don't, I don't, I'm not selling any books on, on the meaning of uh, on, you know, countries and revelation and so on. But regardless of the view, I think we can probably all affirm this. Revelation is relevant in every generation. In every generation of, of humanity... There is this dynamic where there are forces going on that are, that are destructive, that are creating chaos, that are creating violence, that are, that are uh, creating extremism. There are dictators. There are people who want to be dictators. They want to control people's lives. They're using other people. They're taking advantage of people to benefit themselves. And then there's the opportunity to just take the lid off the fruit salad and uncover that dish you brought to the potluck. And so this is what's going on. This is what's really going on. Let's uncover this. Let's pull back the curtain. And let's see what's really going on here. And so I believe that Revelation is relevant in every generation. And then whatever view you hold, you know, welcome to the well. Welcome home. You're, you're, you're welcome at the well here. So, all right, that's the first part. Here's the second part of the sermon. What does this chapter specifically, as we begin this series, what does this mean for you personally? We asked earlier, what do you fear? What causes you anxiety? It might be the situation in the, in the country in an uncertain future. It might be financial stress. It might be wondering what's going to happen with your job. It might be the economy. It might be you've gotten a diagnosis and, and you fear pain and, and where it could lead. And it might be you fear the loss of a loved one. You know, are you losing sleep over something? Well, in the time Revelation was written, Probably around 95 AD, it was a frightening time for the Christians, the followers of Jesus who were living at that time in, in the Roman Empire. The emperor Caesar at that time was a man named Domitian, and various Caesars since Augustus, who was the Caesar when Jesus was born, uh, demanded to be called a son of God or divine in some way. Coins from the air will, will show the face of Caesar and say, son of the divine, and and, and there was a title, even the, the, the Senate uh, in Rome, and they didn't appreciate this, but Domitian, the emperor, demanded that the Senate call him Lord and God. And there's somebody who's full of himself. There's somebody who wants to be a dictator. And he demanded the worship of his subjects, and everybody in the Roman Empire was required to worship the emperor, and there were a few exceptions. One of those exceptions were practicing Jews, because the Romans generally respected older religions and they didn't make Jews worship the emperor. Christianity was seen as a new religion. And so Christians were being forced to worship the emperor. And, and worshiping the emperor was a way of showing that you were a good patriotic Roman. 
A lot of times, you know, they're polytheistic, and so there are lots of gods. And so in every city, there would be a temple to a god, and you would go there, and you'd burn incense to the, to the god of that area. That would show you're just a good, upstanding citizen. And then next to that, there would be a temple dedicated to the emperor. And so you would offer incense to your god, whoever that was. And then you were expected to go right next door and offer incense to Domitian and proclaim the divinity of Domitian. Trade guilds had annual ceremonies where they offered incense to the emperor. And it was tied to the financial system. If you wanted a good job and you wanted the network and, and, and trade business cards, so to speak, and get involved in the, in the, in the commerce of the time, you had, to, you had to play ball. You had to worship the emperor. It's just part of what we do. It keeps the emperor happy. Our, tra- our trade guild wants the emperor to be happy. And so we just we worship the emperor, and whether you care or not, you offer the incense and you move on. And, and there were Christians who said, we just can't do that. We can't offer incense to a, 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 a wannabe dictator who calls himself Lord and God. Because to the early Christians, and this was a political statement, Caesar is not Lord. Who's Lord? Jesus is Lord. And so the historical context of Revelation is that Christians were beginning to face sporadic persecution for not worshiping the emperor Domitian. You get left out of the trade guild. You, you, don't, get to, you don't get paid. People won't do business with you. You're just not playing ball. You're not a good patriotic Roman. And, and we don't want that kind of negative attention from the authorities. And, and sorry, we just can't do business with you. There were people who, who were uh, victims of violence. There was a man in Antipas that had been put to death for refusing to worship the emperor. And so John, this pastor, is exiled to the island of Patmos. He's been exiled because he's, a, he's an influential Christian leader there. And he has a vision of Jesus. And the very first words out of Jesus' mouth, when, when John sees him, he sees the risen Christ, I love it, Jesus placed his right hand on me, he says. A tender just a, just a touch. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You have financial fears. You're fearing violence. You're feeling, you know, what this can mean for your family. You're worried for your loved ones. Are they going to be hurt? Are you going to be killed? Are you going to be attacked? Is your house going to be burned down? Are people going to, you know, vandalize your stuff, you can't provide for your family because you're being left out of the trade guild because you won't worship the emperor. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. I mean, and check this out. If you're, I mean, how's this for a Twitter bio? I am the first and the last. I am the living one. and I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. How's that for a business card? I mean, wow, what an intro. I, I, know that you, I know that you feel fear and you're wondering what's going to happen to you and your family. And Domitian is a powerful guy. He, he holds the power to go, th- go thumbs down and people cut their heads off. And I know he seems powerful, but look at me. <laughs> I was dead and I am alive forever and ever. Do not, oh man, it gives me goosebumps. Do not be afraid. That is how Jesus reveals himself to John in these seven churches. It gives us an alternative view of what we fear. If you're following along quickly, fear can cause more harm to you than actually experiencing what you fear. If you live in fear, just like the, the, the seven churches here we're going to see in Revelation, or fear of what could happen to you, that can, that can be more destructive in your life than if, it, if what you fear actually took place. Remember FDR, we mentioned him, his famous quote from his inaugural address in 1933. He said, so first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. That's a speech. We, we should fear fear because fear paralyzes. It causes us more damage to our lives than the thing we actually fear. And remember, the, the persecution was sporadic, but that fear of persecution was causing people to fall away from the faith, we'll find out in Revelation. It was, it was causing destructive uh, power in their lives. You know, I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and, and 
we're not shying away from real life here, and, and I'm, I'm a 90s music fan. I grew up in the days of grunge. And I, I watched an interview with Billy Corgan, who was the, the singer and guitarist of Smashing Pumpkins, if you, if you remember them. And then, now, this is, this is real life here. He said in the interview that he was abused as a child. Now, not everybody would feel this way, and I don't mean to trigger anybody, okay? But this is the real, this is the blood and guts of life. And he said, for him, the abuse is not what did the most damage to him. What hurt him the most was in between times, when he lived with anxiety and fear that it would happen again. And, and it was so psychologically damage, damaging to him when he thought about it happening, happening again. He lived in this constant state of fear and hyper-alertness, adrenalized and fearful. Now, if you're being abused, get out. That's the only right path. If you're being abused, get out. And if you suspect that somebody might be abused, say something to blow the whistle and help them. But I was struck by that story. Even in, I mean, something as horrible as that. He says... It was the in-between times, the fear and anxiety and the damage that did to my life, anticipating the next time. So fearing something can actually hurt you more than the thing that you fear actually happening. Whatever it is, it keeps you up at night. Maybe what you fear, it hasn't happened. Maybe it won't. But the anxiety makes your heart pump more. That adrenaline is harder on your heart. It affects your relationships. You're short with your loved ones because you're kind of keyed up and worried. You're scared of something. You know, and, and anxiety is a disorder, too. And, and like we said last week, medication is good. You can see a counselor. But there are times when we just fear things and worry about things that will never happen. And it can be worse than it if it actually happened. Secondly, if what you fear does happen, now we're getting into, we're getting into the gospel message, the good news, the great news of Jesus. If what you fear happens, it will not be the last thing that happens. Now, this is the point where our faith really gets tested as we come together as a church in person and online and, and we want to follow Jesus and, and we have to decide, there's a gut check and do I really believe what I, what I want to believe and, and do we really believe it? If, you, if what you fear happens, it will not be the last thing that happens. Remember the word apocalypse is about seeing things as they really are. The message of Revelation is there's more to the story. There's a bigger picture. There are hidden things you don't see. We don't always see behind the curtain in life. But what it means is financial problems are not the end. It means relationship problems are not the end of your story. No matter how painful it is, grief and loss and, and I mean, the real blood and guts of life. The, the, the losses we all face, they're not the end of the story. Because of faith in Jesus, we believe in a resurrection. Even death is not the end. That's not meant to be a band-aid. It's not meant to be a simplistic black and white answer. It's the faith. It's the message Jesus delivers to John and these seven churches and to all of us down through the generations. What you fear, if that happens, if, if your worst fears came true, it would not be the last thing that happens. It's an author and minister named Frederick Beekner who just passed away this past week at the age of 96. I've quoted him many times in sermons, and, and this is his most famous quote. It's from a book called The Final Beast. And check out what Frederick Beekner said, and, and th this is just one of those things you just hold on to. You remember this. If you're not on a time right now, there's going to be a time in your life when you, need, when you need this quote. Beekner writes, the worst thing isn't the last thing about the world. It's the next to last thing. The worst thing is the next to last thing. The last thing is the best. It's the power from on high that comes down into the world that wells up from the rock bottom worst of the world like a hidden spring that's just uncovered. Apocalypse. Boom, there's hope. Didn't see that coming. But like a hidden spring. Can you believe it, he asks. And that's a faith question. Can you believe it? The last best thing is the laughing deep in the hearts of the saints. Sometimes our hearts, sometimes our hearts even. And he writes, you are terribly loved and forgiven. Yes, you are healed. All is well. Beekner says the real test of our faith is, 
If your worst fears came true, can you believe this? The worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is not the last thing that's going to happen to you because the gospel breaks in, the good news of Jesus Christ. The power of the resurrection, the power of hope, that God takes awful situations. We don't believe God causes it. We don't repeat thoughtless platitudes around here when something bad happens. Well, God caused that to teach you a lesson. We don't do that. I could give all, I've given sermons about that. God doesn't cause everything that happens. But when things do happen that cause pain in our lives, God specializes in taking those things and will wring every drop of good that can come out of that. He didn't cause it. It wasn't there for a, the, the, a purpose to, to make you, to teach you a lesson. But what God does is he takes broken people and broken dreams and grief and disappointment and sadness and tears. And God says, here, let's put my right hand on you. Do not be afraid. And let's get up. Let's get up. And we're going to move forward and we're going to find whatever good can come out of this. We're going to make it happen. And we're going to work for that. I have friends who lost all the money they had in the Great Recession. They were millionaires. A couple of guys I know, Chuck and Bill, they were millionaires. They lost it all. And both of them said, you know what, since then, a lot of good things have happened in my life. I've grown. This good thing has happened. This good thing has happened. It's not God that God caused that. It doesn't make it all better. It's not a Band-Aid. It's just the real life of saying, you know what, there is hope. I have friends who have faced the ultimate loss, the loss of a child, the hell of hells. And there is nothing that would ever make that better or would make their grief go away. God didn't cause that. It's not there to teach them a lesson. That awful stuff, our worst fears, they sometimes, most of the time they don't come true, but sometimes they do. And my friends Jeremy and Rhonda would tell you, we'll be broken, we'll that grief's never going to go away. But because of our faith and because we love our son, we decided that his death will not be in vain. And they hold a golf tournament every year for a kid again, which is like make a wish. They, they, they take kids on trips. They're facing terminal illness. And they put a statue of their son in an amusement park that he liked to go to. And people are reminded of him and they donate to this organization. And they've decided every bit of good we're going to wring out of this. Whatever goodness we, that can come from our son's life, we're going to make it happen. That's hope. That's what Beekner's talking about. The worst thing is never the last thing. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it feel better. It's not a Band-Aid. It's not a reason. Like Carrie said last week, it's not minimizing. Like, Well, at least, no ever say that, Carrie said, the chaplain who spoke last week. What this is, though, this is what God does. This is the good news. If what you fear happens... It will not be the last thing that happens. And Beekner says, can you believe it? Jesus said, I hold the keys of death and Hades. I was dead and I am alive again forevermore. Do you believe him? And then lastly, because Jesus has already faced suffering and, and what we fear, you don't face your fears alone. And you think about what Jesus Lost. He lost relationships. He was betrayed by a friend. Uh, he lost, of course, his health and well-being. He lost his life, of course, when he was crucified. He lost reputation when people attacked him and accused him of being a false prophet, and he paid a social price during his public ministry. And then, of course, he faced the ultimate fear of suffering and death. And he says, I am alive to tell about it. I made it through, Jesus says. And in, in the revelation, that darkness of what we fear is not the end and we are not alone, that he appears. He is revealed. He reveals himself to John and these seven churches and these people living in fear and he, and he puts his right hand on them, do not be afraid. It's, it's me. And I'm here and we're going to walk through this together. Do not be afraid. Don't let fear steal the joy and the hope that I have for you. Do not be afraid. Next week, we're going to sign up for this border connection trip we've been talking about. It's the same trip. You can choose either October 1st or October 22nd. And it's an, it's an exploration. It's a trip to go down to the border, Nogales, Mexico. And we're going to take a look at an organization that helps people who are seeking asylum there. 
And of course, these folks are used as a political football in U.S. politics and in Arizona politics. And we're going to go down and learn what causes folks to come here. And, and there are laws in the books in the United States, by the way, that welcome asylum seekers. A lot of people don't know that. Our laws welcome asylum seekers. And we're going to go down and look at this organization and, and meet some folks who are seeking asylum. And then, and then we'll have some table talks after that. And then there are some local opportunities we're going to have to, to check out and get involved in. And the sign-ups next week is going to be back there at the name tag table. You're going to be able to sign up to go on this trip. It's first come, first serve. Only 15 people each time can go. It's 25 bucks a piece. If, if that's a problem, let us know. Minors 12 and up are, are permitted. But Josh, who's leading this trip, is an attorney here in, in the area. And he said when he meets people who are seeking asylum, and he talks to them and hears their story, he said almost without fail, he said, it's just, I just expect to hear it now. People say, I made it here because the Lord was with me. I didn't walk alone. Through the peril of their journey, Jesus was with me, and I didn't walk alone. The message of Revelation is do not be afraid. The, the worst thing is never the last thing, and Jesus says, I am with you. Uh, one of the features, as I wrap up here, the popular interpretations of Revelation in the United States is it involves military battles and violence. And I mean, our foreign policy at times has been influenced by people's interpretation of Revelation. If you know that or not, that it'll happen in the future. I mean, that, that, is, that is scary stuff. But, but a lot of times, you know, you'll have people who uh, will, will go off to war and they will suffer. And, and, and maybe that was necessary and maybe it wasn't. There are people who have given up working for peace in the Middle East because they think that the Battle of Armageddon is, is in our generation and it's unavoidable and they don't even try. But anyway, during a war or after a war, thousands of soldiers come back and they're wounded physically or they're carrying emotional scars like PTSD. And there are programs that help wounded veterans. And you've, I mean, you've heard of those. And I, I heard a story of a, of a man who's a, a wounded veteran. Luke Murphy is his name. And I wanted to share it uh, to, with you as we close. Luke is a retired Army Infantry Staff Sergeant who was awarded the Purple Heart. He lost his right leg and part of his left leg when an IED, an improvised explosive device, was detonated next to his vehicle in Baghdad, Iraq. And I have a picture of him. He spent an entire year in the hospital having 28 surgeries, and he's undergone 31 surgeries total. And he wrote this, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read this first. I'm going to read an, another little quote first that you won't see on the screen, and I'll read this one. He said, my biggest fear while on my back in the hospital bed was I would not be able to do the things I loved anymore. But this organization got me involved in some outdoors events, and they showed me otherwise. He's participated in hunting and fishing trips and what's called the Soldier's Ride, which is a four-day cycling event that he participated in. He's also since graduated from Florida State University and travels as a motivational speaker. And then here's the quote. He said, I don't like to hear about guys who aren't doing well. I will tell them I've been there. I've been in the wheelchair. I've been in the hospital. I've been in the prosthetic device. I've been on the ground in combat and shot at. My brain dwells on the positive instead of the negative. Now, the only thing better, of course, than this would have been a hit. He never been injured in the first place. But when I read his quote, I thought about what Jesus says to John and these seven churches and to all of us down through the generations. Don't be afraid. I've been there. When the worst fears that many people have come true, the worst thing is never the last thing. And I was dead, and I am alive forever and ever. And he placed his right hand on John, and he said, Do not be afraid invite you to pray with me. Oh God, we live in times of fear and anxiety, in times of chaos and violent rhetoric and extremism. And it's one of those times where folks start to think about where is all this going to go? How bad is it going to get? And we start to think about catastrophe and calamity. And some people think about the end. And God, in, in, a, in a time that just causes us to scratch our heads in disbelief at all the things that we read about in the news and hear about. And 
And then in our own personal lives, the effect that it has on us, the anxiety, the fear, and then stuff that's not even connected to those big world events, but it's just the struggles of life. We fear financial loss. We have financial anxiety or relationship anxiety, health anxiety, health fear. We fear getting that phone call. We fear what the doctor is going to say. We fear talking to the boss. We fear the the economy. We fear losing somebody to death or maybe just a broken relationship. God, we live in, in anxiety over so many things. But, oh God, as we start this Revelation series, we hear the good news. Jesus says, I've been there, I've suffered, and I'm here with you. Do not be afraid. There is more to life than living in that, in that kind of fear and anxiety and being all torn up inside and worry. If, if a counselor and medication can help, seek that. If friends can help and talking about it, seek, seek that out. But I've been there. I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. Do not be afraid. The worst thing that happens is never the last thing. Oh God, we thank you for that hope, for what it means for us, and the big issues of the world and what it means for our personal lives. And as we start this series, God, we look forward to hearing your hope and your good news and your inspiration and your joy and your peace through this this message of the revelation. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.